that, Alan, AM, a pleasure to have you on our series this afternoon at the wonderful surrounds of the Cruising Yacht Club of Australia. Thanks for your time. I thought we'd open with the current environment. You've been in business for many decades now. What are you sort of hearing and seeing on the ground? Well, I think at the moment we're seeing the Australian economy really rebounding very quickly. You know, reopening of businesses, I think it's probably a bit of a patchwork between what's happening in New South Wales versus Victoria. You know, Victoria's obviously, you know, was hit harder through the pandemic. But things are feeling very good. Um, obviously, there's a bit of inflation coming through. Everyone's talking about inflation. And, uh, and clearly, that's going to be a, you know, a topic for, you know, the next year or two, I think, to discuss and to see how that eventuates. But, you know, there's a rebound happening. Um, I think people have saved a lot of money. There's a lot of spending happening. And people are coming out and appreciating what they can do now versus what they couldn't do uh, only a, a few months ago. By and large, we're now sort of at the tail end of the pandemic with the uh, East Coast economies by and large open. How would you evaluate the leadership from both the state and federal government over the past 20 or so months? Well, I must say, I think generally the governments have done a terrific job in Australia. I mean, I think Australia's come out, yeah, whichever metric you want to look at, you know, Australia's coming out really well. Obviously, we had very few people in hospital, a relatively minor number of deaths within the scheme of what we've seen in other countries. And we're really dealing with governments that were, you know, confronting issues that they were not used to dealing with and having to pretty much make it up as they went along. There's no doubt there was confusion between, you know, what the rules and regulations were from state to state to state. I think we're all confused, including myself, on that. But it was really, I think, when we look back on the whole at a high level, um, we've actually come out of it really well and I think the governments have done a, you know, generally a terrific job of getting and navigating Australia through a very complex, not only a health issue and a pandemic, but also trying to balance the economic side of it, which is the, the difficult but important balance that you've got to have through these things. Um, you know, how do you balance the two and which weight do you give each and we've seen different approaches by various state governments and you know probably a lot of lessons learned through that. And looking ahead to next year and, and beyond, what do you see are the opportunities on the horizon for Australia? I, I actually think the opportunities for Australia are uh, immense. You know, they might be uh, probably shelved a little bit because we've got a federal election and, and maybe some of the opportunities will be maybe not tackled as quickly as they might have been in ordinary course of business. But Australia's got you know, a very highly educated workforce. We obviously need more people to come into the country um, to run the country uh, and to take up the jobs that are on, on offer. And so there's some great opportunities and challenges within that. You know, what sort of people are we going to bring into the country? Um, how are we going to train the people? Um, you know, do we need to train more doctors, as an example, rather than importing doctors? Um, and also, I think, a lot of people worldwide want to come actually and live in Australia and bring their capital to Australia. And I think there's a really big opportunity there to bring people who can actually build businesses, um, especially technology type businesses where Australia is so good at, and, and really develop that side of it and develop Australia as being obviously a highly paid uh, workforce, but also really at the forefront of uh, of development and technology. 
Equally, there's a number of challenges on the horizon, as you mentioned there, in particular inflation, trade disputes, low population growth. What do you see are, are the risks for the economy in the next, say, 12 or 24 months? Well, I think it, it, it's, it's easy to say that the biggest risk is inflation in a way to you know, upset what's happening you know, in terms of you know, the asset price inflation that we're seeing, um, starting to feed through into labour shortages, obviously. Um, and, and just general price and, you know, just hard to get goods into the country. And given that we import so much, um, you know, the cost of shipping, cost of containers, you know, it might come back a bit, but I don't think it's going to go back to where it was pre the pandemic. So there's a huge amount of opportunities. There's certainly a few risks. And, uh, you know, you've, we've seen the Reserve Bank talk about them. I'm not sure that I exactly agree with the Reserve Bank, but also be conscious that governments don't mind a little bit of inflation. You know, we've had fairly low levels of inflation for such a long period of time. We've imported that low inflation environment to some degree. But now we've got in a situation we're probably going to have inflation a bit higher than would be comfortable. But that'll help the balance sheet and repair the balance sheets of governments over time, as long as it doesn't get to a stage where it's too high. From an investment banking standpoint, there's been an enormous level of activity this year, as you would have seen, particularly in regard to M&A, but also with reference to capital raisings and IPOs. Take me through what you see are the, the major driving forces behind this activity. Well, I think the driving force is cheap money, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, definitely cheap money has created you know, a, a, a bonanza, really, in the capital markets. But also, I think we're actually seeing a much broader-based capital markets activity. So the, you know, the capital markets in Australia are, are you know, far more developed now than they were back in the day when I was active uh, in Australia. And that's a great thing to see. You know, obviously the superannuation money, but just generally the capital markets has really transformed, uh, I, I think, the playing field in Australia, and that's for the better. And I think in, you know, we're seeing that not only in the investment opportunities, but we're also seeing that you know, in the, in the private equity market. We're also seeing it in the investment banking market. You know, the bigger investment banks might be dominating, but there's lots of competitors that are finding niches that I think are really good for the development of the capital markets. There's people specialising in other areas, whether that be broadly based or niched. And so we've got a far more complex and varied uh, capital markets, which is incredibly important for Australia's future. Do you think the Australian market is large enough to be able to have the traditional players, UBS, Goldman Sachs and so forth, and then some of these newcomers, Baron Joey and, and Jardin? Is, it, is the market actually large enough to, to be able to have all these players? Uh, th there is no doubt in my mind that the market's large enough, and the market's obviously growing exponentially. But there's, there's plenty of things that the, the, the sort of the traditional investment banks will do, and there's a lot of things that they won't want to touch. And that, I think, allows enormous opportunities for the smaller or niched players to get involved. And I, I think that's vibrant. And, you know, the, the bigger investment banks are very much run out of the Northern Hemisphere in terms of what they want to do. I mean, UBS has been an exception to some degree, but, you know, they, they still are part of a very large bureaucracy. Um, and, and that's been a very successful business. But there's plenty of room for all the others and uh, I think that's uh, it's a really healthy development going forward. 
Now, before we move on, Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race is coming up in about six or seven weeks, I think it is now. Last year's event, the 2020 event, was cancelled at the last minute. What's the sentiment like amongst participants this year? Well, it's great to actually be able to go sailing again. We've been, um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about it and Boxing Day 2020 was a very empty day for everybody. We, a few of us went out in the harbour and imagined what the harbour normally looks like on Boxing Day at one o'clock. And we're out there and we're having a race with a few boats first out the heads. Um, but we're really looking forward to it. It's great to get back out sailing. The, the development of sailing in terms of getting the crew work ready for this year's race is probably a little bit behind where we'd normally be. But we just can't wait to go sailing and there'll be about 100 boats on the starting line, one o'clock on Boxing Day. And um, we're back into another um, Sydney to Hobart race and, and, and the passion that is intertwined with uh, the great races, we call it. I thought we'd change tack and briefly discuss your background. As I understand it, you grew up in Melbourne and studied a business degree at university. Talk, talk me through what appealed to you in, in studying business and sort of how you got your start. Well, I always wanted to go into business, but I just didn't know quite where to go in business. It was probably the concept of actually understanding what an investment bank was. And as the moment I understood really what an investment bank was, and remember in the 80s, especially the early 80s, there, there was really almost no one, not even Macquarie Bank, were using the term investment banking in Australia. You know, there was the merchant banking scene, which overlapped to some degree on the investment banking business, but only to a small degree. So there were stockbrokers, merchant banks, and banks. And I quite, when I understood what was happening in America with the investment banks, and, that, and actually understood that there was one business in Australia calling themselves an investment bank, which was Dominx, Dominx and Barry or Dominx, Barry, Sammy Montague, I basically made the decision then and there, that's the business I want to work for because they have a vision of being an investment bank. And quite quickly, other banks you know, took on the title of investment banking. Um, but my career was, you know, started at Dominx Barry, which then became ultimately UBS. And what were some of the early roles that you held or some of the early deals that you worked on? Well, we had a, a, a terrific business, especially in the debt capital markets in those days. So I was really running the, the, the trading side of the debt capital markets. In the very early days, you know, through really the start of the, the stock market crash in 87 and then into the debt finance crisis at state government level in the early 90s. And, and then really just evolved, you know, lots of different styles of debt, whether it be inflation-linked um, debt. We did the first uh, mortgage-backed securities um, trade in Australia, originated those with Adelaide Bank. So we're really doing a lot of the, the, the groundbreaking uh, uh, debt capital markets transactions but also had a, a, a massive trading inventory of, of stock and learned how to manage that with the advent of building computer systems to back up the sort of the risks of those sorts of transactions and managing in the concept of those days, you know, some very large inventories of debt um, and trading around with, uh, with clients as, as the markets were, you know, so active, but, you know, not all that well defined in those days.
And what was the um, what was the culture of business and entrepreneurialism entrepreneurialism like in the eighties? Obviously, there was the case and the bond, and and money was you know flowing and and that sort of thing. How was the what was the culture like back then? And then how has it changed? Do you think today? Well, I think the culture back then was a bit was very much can do. There were probably less rules, less bureaucracy to go to 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 develop something in the capital markets. And so we had a, we had a great group of people work with us. We, virtually everyone we worked with had shares in the company. And I think that was the, the, the real difference, that we all had skin in the game. And so we all worked together. So when there were transactions coming across from you know, our corporate finance team or across the equity desk that overlapped you know, the debt capital markets or the debt components, we all actually worked together and we're, we worked together as partners and it was a, a great feeling of partnership. Uh, there might have been a little bit of politics, but, you know, there wasn't much. It was, it was about working together, you know, in the best interests of, you know, doing the transaction and, and, you know, protecting the reputation of the bank because we all own shares in the bank. So you're working as an investment banker and I think I read on weekends you were building these computer trading systems. What were they? Well, we, we built in, in the 80s um, a computer system because I couldn't find any one. I, I knew what I wanted, but you couldn't buy one off the shelf. So I eventually made the decision, let's just work on the weekends to build one. And, you know, the programmers and the coders worked through the week. And I had a concept of what I wanted, and it was really just a, a trading system that would be just incorporating, you know, the general ledger, accounting systems, risk management, straight through processing contract notes, combined risk management, separated risk management, all the risk management sort of maths behind that so we could actually look at all of our portfolios of risk in whichever way we wanted to do it. And so that's a system I think that is still being used at UBS you know, however many years later, um, obviously vastly improved. And we just built you know, the ability to trade options and, and everything onto that one platform. And it just gave us the ability to manage large portfolios of, of risk and, and do it effectively and efficiently and no real time, you know, as the markets used to move so incredibly quickly in those days, we could keep track of what the risk was for the bank. And by the mid-1990s, you'd created that computer trading system, I think, with a few other business partners and sold a half-stake to Swiss Bank Corporation. I'm interested to hear how that deal came about. Well, originally, um, Midland Bank was uh, owned part of our company and they were effectively being taken over by HSBC. And so they said, well, look, you know, do you want to stay with the HSBC group? And we said, no, we want to, we want to go somewhere else. And so we went around the world and found uh, two banks interested in, in purchasing us. Ironically, one was Swiss Bank Corporation and the other one was UBS. And as it turned out, we had better connections at a personal level with Swiss Bank and they elevated it quite quickly to the board and they became our partner. Um, some years later, obviously, Swiss Bank and UBS merged, so um, it's quite ironic that it ended up that way. But it, interestingly, it was a long time before the American banks were really interested in coming to Australia. And it was really the only, only the two Swiss banks that were interested in you know, significantly increasing their uh, ability to um, really be in Australia. 
And then that brings us to your relocation to Japan in 1997. As I understand it, it would have been an interesting period to be based in Asia, to be you know working with a Swiss bank given the merger that shortly followed, and I believe that you're instrumental in, in working on that. Walk me through sort of that part of your career. Well, I think the first step really was when uh, Warburg's, SG Warburg, was taken over by Swiss Bank, which meant that we were going to merge what was Potter Warburg with Swiss Bank Australia. And that was a terrific merger. Um, Matthew Grounds was doing a lot of work in, at, in terms of bringing those businesses together. And we really developed a business that whatever Potter Warburg didn't have, we had and vice versa. And it was a really a marriage made in heaven. We, we had the trading and we had the, the risk management and we had the technology and they had terrific relationships and, and, and terrific people and put them together. And I think we had a, a, a sensational combination. That quite quickly meant that we were making, you know, really good revenues and profits out of Australia, but it also meant that we had too many good people and we really needed to um, grow the career paths of some of those people. And one of the ways of doing that was essentially moving some of the senior people into basically helping Swiss Bank and its business in Asia. And so then a number of people went to uh, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong and I went to Japan and quite quickly realised that there was enormous opportunity for you know, international banking in Japan and, and it was really a great time to be in Japan as the markets were sort of opening up to the foreigners um, and also the Japanese banking system was you know, going into crisis as well. I'd be interested to hear, after moving from Australia to Japan, how different were the business cultures and, and what did you have to learn? I was very fortunate when I arrived in Japan. I, I, when we were taking over UBS, uh, I met uh, a woman who was my equivalent at UBS and she was Japanese but had been brought up in Europe and was fluent in at least four languages. And I actually asked her the question, so could you tell me what the difference is between you know, working in Japan versus um, as a Westerner? And she just explained it. It probably felt like it only took five minutes to understand it, but it was over a few days. And, and you could understand the Japanese culture very well. And, and I, I mean, I really enjoy being in Japan and the, and the Japanese people are terrific to deal with, but you still need to know some pretty basic lessons. They're not hard to learn, but they're very important to learn when you're dealing in Japan. Uh, Following the merger, I understand you then became uh, Managing Director of UBS AG Japan, which was the largest foreign bank in the country with a balance sheet of some $100 billion US. Take me through your leadership of the bank during those years and then some of the key deals that you recall working on. Yeah, no, I think the merger of, of in Japan was fascinating because we actually had a three-way merger. My predecessor had bought a Japanese securities company that was part of long-term credit bank that was eventually nationalised whilst I was in Japan. And so we had a three-way merger. We had the Swiss bank business, which was really an American business in a cultural sense. We had the UBS business, which was quite Swiss and traditional Swiss, but at the cutting edge of a lot of quite um, new technology type derivative transactions at the same time. And the long-term credit 
bank business, which was a very traditional Japanese securities business with a very Japanese culture. So we had three incredibly different cultures to actually bring together. So it, it was actually understanding those cultures really important to the essence of the merger. And whilst we, we didn't keep everyone from those three companies, we actually kept the vast bulk of it because the plan was to develop a very big footprint in Japan. You know, at that time, the second biggest, now the third biggest economy in the world. And, and to try to be you know, very much one of the major international uh, banks, especially from a European perspective, uh, you know, in Japan. And obviously the cross-border capital flows between Japan and Europe, you know, they vary, but they're also very large. So we were really well set up from the capital markets perspective, especially equity markets, um, cross-border cross flow, Europe into Japan, uh, we were pretty much dominant in that business. Um, we were very large in, in just the, the, the money markets and the forward and the foreign exchange markets were, were massive. And for a couple of years, it was probably ourselves and possibly one other bank that really supported the US dollar requirements of the Japanese banking system. Um, and a lot of the balance sheet was um, doing that. Um, so it was, very, it was a very profitable business, but a, a, a massively large business. And because UBS, after the merger of Swiss Bank and UBS became a very cash rich bank uh, because of the private banking businesses and, and probably priced US dollars internally so incredibly cheaply. And that was probably a good thing at that time. It probably was the beginning of the downfall of UBS to some degree because of the cheap US dollar internal pricing meant that when the GFC hit, you know, they had um, some billions more of mortgage-backed securities than they would have liked. You mentioned Matthew Grounds there. I'd be interested to know what makes the UBS business so successful, particularly here in an Australian context. There was yourself, Matthew Grounds, Guy Fowler, absolute legends of, of investment banking. What's the sort of secret to success, do you think? I think the secret of success is, it doesn't matter whether you look at business or sport, actually, it's actually just having great people. I mean, investment banking, you, okay, you have to be working at the right bank who's got the capability, but it's actually being the right person. I mean, we've had over the years some terrific deal makers, you know, you, you've named a number of them, you know, Chris Mackay, uh, Andrew Pridham, who effectively dominated, you know, the REIT market for yeah, at more than a decade um, in Australia until some of the other competitors came in and took you know, some market share, but not a lot of market share, away from UBS. So we just had an abundance of um, really, really good people and, uh, and a lot of people behind them to back them up. And you know, it, it, once, you, once you've got that in the business, it's actually, it's hard to get it. And we got it really through that merger with Potter Warburg and then we're able to keep it running from there. One more before we move into racing, which is the main topic of discussion today. But in terms of putting deals together, what are the fundamentals, do you think, to deal making? Well, I, I wish I really knew the fundamentals of deal making. But I, I, I think it's often, you know, having a vision and, and, and anticipation. We would spend a lot of time anticipating the way that the capital markets were going to develop and the requirements you know, on both sides of what we thought was, was possible and, and actually thinking laterally. 
and thinking outside the box. And so it's, you know, you, it's, it's not all science. There's actually quite a lot of art in it as well, which I actually think makes investment banking a fascinating business. And whether it was in Australia or Japan, sometimes you, you would, I would do it at least once a day. You just walk around the bank and talk to people and you come back with ideas or they would have ideas and then you'd develop the ideas. And that's actually what kept me interested in the business because doing the same thing every day, I don't find as much fun. But investment banking was so much fun because you just walk around, talk to people and come back with ideas. And then, you know, that's the way I think a lot of the deal creation of investment banking was made in those days. And, you know, hopefully people still get the opportunity to do that today. I said we'd talk about racing, so let's get into it. Starting off with your first experiences of sailing, which I think I read were a Canadian Bay Yacht Club in Mandaliza down on the Mornington Peninsula. Tell me about your first experiences and, and the sort of thrill that you got out of sailing that obviously has carried through throughout your life. Well, my mother and father bought me a, a little mirror dinghy, and I think it was really for my brother and I, but it was, you know, I think Saturday my brother got to sail it and he decided he didn't like it and so the boat was available for me on Sunday and I think somebody just pushed me out and no instruction book no no tuition it was like good luck see you see you in, a, in an hour hopefully uh, I think there was somebody there to come and uh, rescue me if required but we didn't need that just but it, I, I think it, at the age of 10 11 it's a bit like you know, what can you actually do? Um, you can't drive a car. Okay, you can ride a bike, but this is, this is like independence. This is like, let's go out, we're on the sea. Whatever you leave with is whatever you've got. You know, if you, if you forgot to take the bailing bucket, well, that's your problem, deal with it. Um, so that was a, a great thing growing up. I think it, it teaches you independence, a bit of resilience. Um, dealing with teams, although you know, maybe only one crew person. And, and then all the complication of, you know, you understanding the racing rules, you know, how race conducts, um, how, to, how to pick wind shifts or pretend that you can pick wind shifts. So there's just so many elements to the sport that, you know, that really keeps you going. And that's why even today, you know, there's always development, you know, we're continually developing our boats to make them faster, better, easier to sail. And we haven't stopped yet. <laughs> we haven't run out of ideas yet. And it's quite amazing that the sport can be, you know, so complex, which is, you know, difficult at times, but it also means that you don't get the opportunity to get bored or there's always another development opportunity somewhere in the sport. And then how did your career or your, your passion sort of evolve from the age of 11 up to your first Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race, which I think was in the 1980, year 1980, aboard a, a yacht called Bacardi, if I recall correctly? I was always fascinated sailing on Port Phillip Bay when you'd occasionally come up against a big yacht. And, and the big yachts in those days were probably only about 34, 35 feet long, so not nearly as, as big as the average size of the boats today. But you'd be fascinated by the, the, the power and the complexity of the bigger boat. And I, I was just keen. You know, we grew up with a family that was so keen on, on sailing and, and the two of us 
Peter and I, we just always wanted to go and sail on big boats and go and sail in the ocean and, and perhaps travel to somewhere that wasn't Port Phillip Bay as well. And you know, the allure of going to Sydney or, or going to Hobart at the age of sort of 15 or 16 was just terrific. And, and being on a, your own adventure and sailing the boats in the ocean and, and the joy of that. So that's what we went and did. And we went down to Hobart, sailed boats back. Inevitably, you'd end up back in Sydney and you'd, and you'd turn, you know, it would be January and you'd come in through the heads, you know, turn left into the heads and you go, oh, the beauty of Sydney Harbour. And it, versus, we love sailing on Port Phillip Bay, but the beauty of Sydney Harbour, you know, I, I think we both fell in love. And now we, you know, Peter and I, you know, we uh, grew up sailing together and we both live in Sydney. It's not, not a coincidence. And what was the, the first experience like? So you, you do the Sydney to Hobart, is it more challenging, more difficult than what you had anticipated, the very first race? Yeah, I think, I think those early days of Sydney to Hobart, I mean, I mean that, there's no race that's easy to Hobart, it doesn't seem like. Maybe, maybe there's been one or two years have been relatively easy, but it, it's always pretty challenging. And in those days, the boats w were very heavy, the gear was very heavy. You know, the winches weren't well geared. You know, nothing, nothing was easy. And the boats were slow, so it took a long time to get to Hobart. You know, whereas these days the boats might be you know, pretty brutal to sail, especially in, in heavier winds, but at least you get there pretty quickly. So, you know, there were, there were great challenges, but there was also a lot of fun. It was a bit, it was a bit more relaxed, the sailing in those days. Um, and you developed lifelong friendships and you know, that was a great thing because you'd come up to Sydney and probably spend three weeks up in Sydney before the race and you'd stay on the boat and get to meet people and the people I met in 1980 are still, still my friends. I want to ask you about that. So, as I mentioned, we're probably five or six weeks out from this year's edition of the race. What, what happens over the next, you know, four or five weeks in terms of preparation and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, the preparation is really critical especially this year, because we've only done essentially two long races. We've got one more to go and then we're into you know, the Sydney to Hobart. So we've got crew that actually haven't sailed on the boat since February or March, because of some of our crew are interstate. We've got two, two of our crew in South Australia, so they'll be, they'll be here in Sydney in a couple of weeks' time, but that'll be the first time on the boat. And they're, they're great sailors, but you can't come in after sailing, you know, you can't get to the top level of sailing having not sailed for essentially nine months. So we've got quite a lot of preparation to do to try and get so we actually peak at the right time. And in sport, that's never easy, but this year it's probably even more difficult. The only good thing is everyone's got essentially the same problem. So uh, it's, it's gonna be pretty furious run into you know, mid-December where we sort of then pack the boat up and, and don't sail it. Um, after about mid-December, so we've only got really four weeks to get ready. And if I recall correctly, this is your 31st Sydney to Hobart this year. Looking back on the, the, the last 30 that you've competed in, how different is every year's edition of the race and do you learn something from, from every race? Yeah, I think virtually every year is different and, and I think that's the beauty of the race. You know, the, the start might be the, you know, pretty similar, but the, the middle part of the race seems to vary every year. And it's a, it's a highly tactical race. 
you know, we see that more in some years than others. And once you get around Tasman Island and then start going into Storm Bay and the Derwent, you, you need a little bit of luck on your side as well. So, you know, not only do you need to have, you know, essentially one of the best boats, best crews, but you need a more than an ounce of luck towards the back, back end of the race. And so the technology of actually getting to uh, the boat to its highest level of performance is obviously becoming much more computer driven, you know, whether it be weather models, but also looking at the performance of the boat and analysing the performance of the boat. So, you know, no one would be surprised to hear that, that things are becoming more technical and, and technology is becoming so important. Um, but there's an element of judgment and, you know, we've got a lot of people who've sailed a lot of races. So when you do need an element of judgment, then we've got that experience on the boat to sort of make the judgment call. The computer might be saying something and you go, oh no, we need to go a little bit further because the wind's gonna shift a little bit more or whatever the issue is. And, and you overlay the judgment on top of the computer. In some years though, it was interesting. It was only two years ago, the last race, where you, we were going through a trough, a weather trough. And if you were, 200 metres, this is really just in top of Bass Strait. If you were 200 metres further east, there was no wind. If you were 200 metres further west, there was no wind. So you had to be within really about 50 metres wide track to keep the wind. And you need to know beforehand that you needed to be right there and then modify it with your eyesight at the last bit. But anyone who didn't get into that exact spot got dropped back about four or five hours. Wow. From a observer's perspective, when you see it on TV, it all looks very comfortable sailing on Sydney Harbour at the start of the race and then down to Hobart in, uh, in the last part of the race. But how treacherous is it, particularly when you start getting into Bass Strait and, uh, and the winds start to pick up? How much sleep do you get over the, the course of the two days or three days, depending on the, depending on the boat? Yeah, we don't get a lot of sleep out there, but you always come in with a little bit of reserve in, of energy. And, but the race is really tough. I mean, people talk about Bass Strait being the tough bit. It, it sounds the tough bit, but actually the east coast of New South Wales is probably the most treacherous part of the race. And the reason that the east coast of New South Wales is so bad, not in all years, but in some years, is because you've got the east coast current that heads south and then you've got the wind that often comes from the south. And then once you've got wind against tide or current, then you get much bigger waves. So in a nor'easter, it's not too bad because obviously you've got the current and the wind going the same way. When they go against each other, that's when the waves really start to stand up. And you start going up a wave and then you realise you're at the top of the wave and there's very little back to the wave. So the boats start to become a little airborne off the back of the waves. And the faster they're going and the bigger they are, the more airborne they become. And I mean, boats are not designed to fly. <laughs> so they, they come down with a crunch and that's not good for the boat and it's not good for the crew. So, you know, that, that's the biggest risk element probably of the race is just managing how you get over the waves when they become bigger. Fortunately, the last few years, we've had predominantly reaching running races. So it's made that a little bit easier, but you know, there'll be a southerly sometime soon, whether it be this year or next year, who knows. We've been saying that for a few years, but we know our number's gonna come up at some point.
I want to ask you about the journey from participating in the first race in 1980 to, I think, becoming skipper and then actually owning a, a boat. Uh, talk us through that, how, how you came to own Ichiban and, and perhaps yachts before that as well. Yeah, I mean, being sort of passionate in the race, you, you feel like you want to you know, have your own boat in the race at some point and, and, in, and enjoy the experience that, that that brings with it and, and probably some of the bills as well. I'm not sure that's enjoyment. But it, you know, it's just a passion when you've got a vision for a boat that you want to build or, or, or buy and then take into the race. And, and that passion was when I came back from Japan. You know, I wanted to build a boat. We built you know, a boat very similar size, but older style boat in today's terms. That was the original Ich Ichiban and, and that was a, a great fun boat to sail. And, we had a, you know, some great times with a lot of friends and raced the boat really hard and, and really enjoyed that experience and then, and then really went to, to other boats over the years depending on um, when we did the, the, the ocean race, um, the round the world race and brought that boat back to Sydney and sailed that for a number of years and then built other boats subsequent to that. So it's just a passion that hasn't left me at this stage. And I must say you've won three races on overall handicap. What's the, the feeling at the end when you have won the race? So obviously feeling of elation, but how long do you sort of, how long does the party kick on for afterwards? How many beers are consumed? And what's the, what's the feeling, the emotions that, that you go through? Yeah, look, it's an incredible feeling. You're arriving in Hobart and thinking that you're in, you're in good shape to win the race. And sometimes it takes, you know, a day or two to, to actually know, you know, depending on the boats behind and, and their ratings or handicaps. So it's, it's a bit of a waiting game, but it's, it's great fun, especially in 17 when we sailed an incredibly quick race in very fast conditions and we arrived at the dock and my sailing master, Gordon Maguire, came up and just said, hey, Matt, you, you, you know no one's going to beat that time. You know, we were so fast in that race. And, you know, that's a great feeling. And, and to have had, done it three times, including... With a with a with a big break from 1983 to 2017, um, yeah, you'd be. Uh, it's just a great feeling and a lot of fun and uh, you know it's 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 part and parcel of the race. But a lot it's the race is more about participating. Um, not everyone gets to win the race. It's a incredibly hard race to win. But if you get the opportunity, you'll you'll never forget it. Before we move on, has the race changed at all since the very first race in 1945, or do you think the fundamentals are by and large still still the same as what they were back then? You know, I think it's interesting when you look back to 1945 and you look at the boats and uh, have the fundamentals changed? In some ways, they haven't. You know, it's it's sailors going to sea, you know, trying to get the finish line as quickly as possible. But having said that. Everything's changed, you know, the technology, the understanding of the weather, the speed of the boats, um, the professionalism of, of some crews. A lot's changed. Um, the friendships that were established in those days, you know, they still exist today, but they're different, different dynamics in the sport. And so, you know, the, the, the basics are very much, you know, the same, but everything around it is so totally different. The sailing techniques, the gear that we're using, the computerisation of the sport um, and the development of the sport. And it's, it's a really development sport that's 
not going to stop anytime soon. Moving away from this race to the sport of, of sailing, as you were mentioning there, you've been involved in sailing in a number of different capacities in, in world sailing, which I think you're involved in today, um, in this particular yacht club and also in the Australian Olympic Committee. Take me through perhaps some of those roles and, and some of the reforms that have been implemented, particularly when it comes to Australian sailing. Yeah, and I think giving back to, to sport, I mean sailing, but also sport generally is just a, you know, it's something that I really, really enjoy doing. And I think while it's, you've got something to give, you know, it, it's, it's a great thing to do to, you know, sport I think is an ever increasingly important part of the fabric of society. I think as careers change, you know, people more working from home and perhaps moving jobs more regularly than they might have in the past. You know, sport, sporting clubs and national federations of sport have got a lot more to do in terms of, I think, you know, bringing people back in terms of not only the fitness, but also the mental health, the socialisation of society as well. So there's an enormous number of areas where I think sporting clubs and sport is just so important to, you know, the way we go forward as a country and, you know, and Australia's probably no different to any other country. So, you know, you know sporting clubs aren't in great shape you know, many of them aren't in great shape after the pandemic. And that's something I think that, you know, very passionate about the rebuilding of it. But as president of Australian Sailing, you know, certainly a group of us saw enormous opportunities to change the structure of the National Federation for Sailing. We, we worked out that we had all the state officers and a, and a very small National Federation. And we worked out that we had 66 directors and probably no more than about 40 staff. So we had so many more directors trying to work out what was happening in the sport than we had staff and capability and financial resources to do anything. And what, when we laid that out, it was pretty clear that we had to change. You know, there was no way that that was sustainable. And in the sport of sailing, the clubs are really dominant. You know, the, the, it's a bit like golf and some other sports, but sports ferry. So, you know, the clubs, have, the clubs have got the resources, the land um, and the money and the state organisations were relatively weak compared to some other sports. And so we said, well, look, we can't continue on having such a complicated way of administering sport in what is, you know, a, a relatively, you know, it's a very large geographic sport, but we're still only looking at 120,000 members, you know, Australia-wide. And we've got to be able to make decisions, implement them and move ahead quickly as a sport and realising that not everything, not every decision will be right, but it's better making the, being able to make a decision and getting the odd one wrong than not being able to really decide and implement. So those changes by effectively um, bringing the states and bringing all the staff into the National Federation was something that you know, took a long time to, to implement because in sport, unlike business, I think you need to bring everybody with you and that takes time and you've got to realise the difference. But it was something that I think sets sailing up and a number of other sports have, have you know, taken the same uh, reforms and structural reforms forward and, and now it's the recommended structure for sport by the federal government. Realising that it probably doesn't suit every sport but it certainly suits a large number of the sort of mid-size and smaller Olympic sports. 
And what about participation in the sport? I think golf is one sport which has really undergone a resurgence over the past couple of years, particularly with young people. How, how do you go about encouraging young people to get involved in sailing, or not just young people, but people in general? Well, it's all about delivering programs to the yacht clubs and then they deliver to the communities around the yacht clubs. And sailing's been very successful running the Learn to Sail and the Tackers introduction uh, programs, you know, whether they be targeted at, at, at youths or whether they be targeted at, at older people and you know, middle-aged people as well. And so there's been a huge influx into the sport. You know, the membership of the National Federation went from I think about 50-something thousand to 120,000 over only a few years. And part of that was the resurgence of actually implementing learn to sail programs and introductory programs in a, fair, in a very universal way, um, you know, but tailored to the particular yacht clubs and delivering them nationally. And that's created, I, I think, an enormous rebound in the sport. So the sport's growing. Uh, Last time I checked, it's growing, and you know a lot of the sports around are are actually shrinking, but I think the sports that have got their act together are actually seeing quite good um, quite good growth and and sustainable growth patterns of I think you know between three and six percent. And continuing on the theme of sport, as I mentioned, you've um, had a long association with the Australian Olympic Committee. I think you're still on the committee in the, in the finance. Um, from a finance perspective. In regard to the Brisbane uh, 2032 Olympics, I wanted to get your view on, everybody sort of is, is aware that Brisbane was appointed as the city that's going to host the Olympics, but what are the benefits, the tangible benefits that you see over the next, say, 11, 10, 10 or 11 years for, for Brisbane or, or for Australia in general? Yeah, I think the opportunities for, for Brisbane 32 are, are Australia-wide. And I think that's the good news. A lot of people go, oh, the Olympics are going to be in south-east Queensland. It won't, it won't impact me because I'm in Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide. You know, this is going to have an impact right across the country, which is terrific. So certainly south-east Queensland is going to be a massive growth area, with or without the Olympics, in terms of population growth. South-east Queensland is going to have more people by 32 than Sydney had in 2000. You know, a lot of people don't realise the, the sheer amount of growth that's happening and probably the pandemic might be fast-tracking some of that growth as well. So we've got a, a, a terrific opportunity, I think, to then have a terrific Olympics there that is based you know, in that southeast Queensland corridor, but also will spread further afield um, all the way to um, south to Melbourne and to Sydney, um, especially with football being held there and um, further north to Townsville. So there'll be you know, some elements of the Olympics, you know, further north and south and southeast Queensland. The, the economic benefits will be pretty much spread about um, a little bit under 50% to the rest of Australia, you know, that is outside of Queensland. So that's, that shows you that it will be much more broadly based from an economic point of view. But I think the biggest opportunity is actually in sport and developing where we actually can take sport in Australia over the 10 years going into Brisbane 32, and then the 10 years after. Um, beyond there, I can't see that far, but it, it and we've, we've called it in conjunction with uh, Commonwealth Games Australia, uh, the 10 plus 10 plan. So the 10 years going into the Brisbane Olympics, and that is developing 
yeah, participation and high performance and the, the, the sporting roadmap for Australia. And obviously it requires sport and government at all levels to sign on to that program or something that looks similar to that program. It, it doesn't have to be exactly that program. But Australia's got a huge opportunity. We've, we've got to get the goodwill of all levels of sport and government together. But we need to, we, we have an opportunity to, to perform well at the Olympics. But actually, we've got an opportunity to transform sport in this country. And that's a really exciting opportunity because that'll have huge benefits for, you know, fitness of the community, you know, the mental health, the socialization benefits, and set ourselves up as a real sporting powerhouse that will be just terrific for society at, at every dynamic you can think of. I want to ask you about the health of Australian sport. I think the 2016 Olympics, there was sort of widespread uh, commentary that Australia had underperformed and we've performed in contrast quite well this time around in, in Tokyo. Are you finding that Australian sport's getting enough resources and, and maybe over the next 10 years as part of that plan, how much you know, resources, are, more resources are going to be needed to have the high performance academies and, and you know, things like maybe a lottery like they have over in the UK. Is that, are they the sort of things that would be considered? Well, I think as a country going into Brisbane 32, we really need to be looking you know, at the long-term basis. It's, it, it's not just about how many medals can we win at the next Olympics. It's actually taking basically the, you know, the children that are at school now and picking the ones you know, in a very broad-based way to actually get them ready and, and grow the, the underlying sports for Brisbane and beyond. And so this requires an enormous amount of commitment and you know, medium to longer term planning. Whereas many of the sports at national federation level are, are, are worried about the next games. We need to look at not just the next games. You know, Paris is not that far away from an Olympic perspective, but we need to look through Paris you know, the, the, the children at school that are going to be competing in Brisbane need our focus now. And they won't be competing in Paris, but, hope, but they, some of them will be competing in Brisbane, possibly LA, and wherever the Olympics goes after Brisbane. So there's, there are some great opportunities. And the, really the cooperation that we've seen at government between you know, state government and federal government you know, has been terrific. You know, we all know that there'll be the odd tension going forward, you know, we're running the, the biggest show on earth. So, it, you know, there will be some tension going forward, but it's really critical that we, that we all see the bigger picture and get together and develop a much better sustainable model for, for sports. But it's not just high performance. You know, it's, you know, we've got to start with participation, get people in, that'll develop high performance over a period of time. We know that. Just to close out our discussion, parallels between business and sport. What has sport taught you about business and, and vice versa? I think there are differences between sport and business. We, you know, clearly in sport you need to bring people with you. Um, you know, there's a lot of volunteers. And volunteering is so incredibly important to sport. You know, we couldn't run most of the sporting organisations or sports in Australia without the goodwill of the volunteers. So, the goodwill of those people is so important. But the fundamental basis of 
sport and businesses, I think, is just putting really, really good people around you. And, and having appropriate delegation and, and monitoring of those people. But if you're working with the, the best people, then it, it doesn't matter whether you're in business or sport, you know, they'll, they'll make you look better than you would have looked otherwise. What about risk, whether it's on a yacht or, or in business? How would you sort of evaluate your risk appetite and, and what are the um, key inputs that you consider when evaluating risk? Yeah, ri risk is a really interesting question. Uh, you know, having run large balance sheets of risk in investment banking, there's things that I would do in investment banking that I might not do at sea because if you do the wrong thing at sea, it might be... Um, yeah, it might put the yacht in danger. So I, I guess when we look at the, the design of boats and overlaying that, yeah, we, we do take a lot of risk in terms of design components. But we, we're always quite comfortable because we've, we've all got a lot of experience. And, you know, if somebody comes up with an idea and you take it to somebody who's even more experienced and you know, we might, our design team, we've got people in New Zealand who are structural engineers. We've got people in Spain who design the boat. Um, our boat builders are also in Spain, just by coincidence. And so we've got people all over the world that actually help us make decisions. Often we come up with the ideas, but if they all think it's a good idea, well, you know, that reduces your risk exponentially. Um, but the idea gen generation often starts you know, with a very small group of people on our boat. And so we, we, we come up with the idea and then, you know, get all the experts globally involved. And, and it's not too different in business, I don't think. What's the lifespan of a Sydney to Hobart yacht if, it, if you want to remain competitive year on year? I mean, it sounds like obviously you can do upgrades and, and design changes, but is there, say, after 10 or 15 years, you have to look at selling that and, and getting a new yacht because the technology's moved so quickly? Yeah, I think it's interesting looking at the technology. In yachts, I think a lot of the technology at the moment, you can actually increasingly uh, retrofit to your boat. It, it might not be as easy as putting it in when it's brand new, but uh, upgrading your boat is something that I think people are increasingly getting used to. You know, the, the build costs of a new hull you know, are, are, you know, are not cheap and, and, and only going up, but there is a definite slowdown in the evolution of the hull design, and that's the hardest thing to change once the boat's built. So a lot of the other components are relatively easy to to change, retrofit, uh, to improve on. And I guess that's what we do. We're doing a lot with our boat, given the development of the hull forms has, has really, it hasn't stopped, but it's, it's dramatically slowed over the years from where we've come. And if you look at the hull forms of, you know, the 1940s <laughs> and today, it's very different. But I, I do see that part of, of boat design slowing down, um, but, the, but the other component pieces you know, I've still got a trajectory of um, improvement and, and evolution. And, and in, then if we had new materials come in, then that would be a game changer. But you know, most of our materials are carbon fibre plus a little bit of titanium. And, but, you know, it's really pr pretty much carbon fibre for everything, um, except for the drink bottles. 
Second last question, because uh, I promised our videographer I'd ask you this. Cryptocurrencies, do you have a view on whether they're positive, negative, going up, going down, or, or just a, you know, a fad? Cryptocurrencies, are, I think it's always the interesting question. Is, is it a fad? Um, uh, to some degree, yes, but is it going away? No. Um, I think we're going to see, you know, you know a, a terrific evolution of cryptocurrencies. People are going to ultimately move away from government-backed currencies to, to some degree, and I think that degree will just continually increase over time. I, whether they're going up today or down tomorrow, I've got no idea. Um, you know, uh, there's certainly a lot of risk involved at the moment. I think that risk will, will decrease and the volatility will decrease over time and we'll see it being much more of a mainstay of, of, of business and investment opportunities and, and, and it will evolve to being you know, a core component of, of people's you know, transaction and, and investment portfolios. But you know that that's going to take a fair time to evolve, but they're not going away now. My final question is: What's next for Matt Allen? You're going to keep competing in the Sydney to Hobart yacht races. I think you sit on a number of boards for various businesses. What does the next chapter look like? Yeah, it's always interesting looking at the next chapter. We're all, we're just looking into into Boxing Day this year, <laughs> um, and and beyond. But I think there's a number of things that that you know, I still want to do in, in sport, but, you know, especially you know, with the, the Olympic Committee and having a home games in Australia. There's obviously a lot of planning uh, towards that. And I think that's really exciting and, and to try and be that part of that change in terms of where we can put sport in Australia over that sort of 10 years going into, into Brisbane. So that's a really great challenge. And just going back and enjoying my sailing and sailing the boat hard and, and um, trying to work out the, you know, the, the best regattas and the best races to do wherever they be in the world and, and go and enjoy some of the best regattas and the best destinations. And the great thing about sailing as a sport, like many other sports, you're part of a global community. So you can go to anywhere in the world and you're always then catching up with people that you've known for, for many years. And, and you know, it's being such a global nature it um, makes it so much fun and the destinations are pretty good as well. Matthew Allen AM, pleasure having a chat with you this afternoon. One of the great yachtsmen here in Australia and one of the great aficionados for the sport of sailing but also one of the great business identities. So thanks again for, the, for, for your time and for the opportunity. Thanks Rob, it's been a lot of fun.